Welcome to Undercover Influencer. I've taken the past few weeks off to travel with my family, but I'm incredibly excited about this week's episode. This week I'm interviewing Ann Mundell. Ann is the Associate Professor of Scene Design at Carnegie Mellon University and a professional scenographer. Ann has won numerous awards for her work in theater and as a teacher. I had the honor of learning under Ann during my time at Carnegie Mellon and her teaching changed the way that I looked at the creative process. I hope that you enjoy this discussion that Ann and I have about design, the way processes have changed, and the future of art education. So sit back and enjoy this discussion with Ann Mundell. Hey, Ann, thank you so much for being with me today. Well, thanks for inviting me, Tisa. This is a very exciting project. I'm excited to be here with you. Oh, my goodness. You um, are one of my favorite people in the world. And just for people who don't know, I met you in college. You were my professor for one year. And then I also did growing theater outreach with you. And um, you probably have had more impact on my life than anyone else that has ever taught me. And I'm just so thankful that I get to hang out with you and chat with you today. Well, you had a lot of impact on me, too. You made me think differently, as, as all of my good students do. But good students are the best teachers, so thanks for being one of my best teachers. Now, you are a professor at Carnegie Mellon University. You teach scene design, but you also are a professional scene designer, correct? That is right. And how did you get into scene design? What was the, the journey that you went on to go from, you know, at what point did you realize that you wanted to do scene design as a career, and how did you get to the to where you are now as a professional scene designer? Um, well, let's see, I got into the theater because I had a crush on a boy in the stage crew as, you know, when I was 13. As, mm-hmm. many, as many things like that happened. But, um, but I realized that I wanted to be a scene designer. I was actually working as a theater electrician. Um, and I remember hanging upside down from a catwalk, working to focus a light at one point during a, a pre-production. Um, and there was... Um, uh, a designer down below me who actually happened to be a charge painter at the Metropolitan Opera, um, which is about as esteemed as you can get in the scene painting world. Um, and he is, and his assistants were painting a set for Romeo and Juliet. Um, and at some point I, I realized my legs are entirely asleep. I had been just hanging upside down watching them paint because I had been suddenly so mesmerized and transported by this kind of magic alchemy sort of thing that they were doing. Um, and that was the moment when I was hanging upside down and people were yelling at me, you know, focus the light. And I had become entirely oblivious to everything but what was uh, this thing that was happening below me, sort of the way that, you know, the universe often will offer offer things on a beautiful plate in front of you, opportunities. You just have to have your eyes open. So that was a moment where um, I think maybe the universe had been tapping on my shoulder fairly uh, uh, fairly insistently. Um, and at that point, you know, it's like, okay, you're going to hang upside down and, and, and <laughs> your path for, for a while. Um, and then I went on to grad school um, and I studied um, all kinds of design, which is sort of sonography, which is all kinds of design for the theater. Um, and I moved to Pittsburgh to work for Pittsburgh Public Theater. Um, I thought I'd be here for a couple of years and then moved to New York. Um, and then I started teaching and I hated it. I was terrible at it. Um, it was really difficult. Um, I walked into my first class and I told them absolutely everything about the subject that I can no, no longer even remember what it was. I thought, oh my gosh, this teaching thing, it's exhausting. <laughs> and 10 minutes had passed and I was done. And it was an hour and a half class. Um, 
So, uh, but I gradually sort of fell in love with it. And now teaching and my own um, practice as, a, as an artist and theater person are um, inextricable. And you um, were such an incredible teacher. You had a pretty unorthodox method of teaching, as I remember. You, um, you gave us room to fail in the classroom and you gave us room to experiment. Why do you think that's so important when you're teaching young artists? to give them room to try things out and try new things, try things that you probably as a teacher know they'll fail at. Why do you think it's so important to give that space in the classroom? Well, so uh, I don't know if you know the work of Sir Kenneth Robinson, um, but he believed that in many ways we train the creativity out of children um, in the public education, you know, not, not universally, but kind of as a, uh, as a trend. Um, we train students to look for answers rather than better questions. Um, and I think that probably uh, what he said was so resonant. Um, you know, our students sort of come in going, okay, what's the answer? What do you want me to do? What's the procedure to get to the place I'm supposed to get? Um, and at some point I realized, and this was for me too as an artist, I realized, wait a minute, this is not about the answers. You know, this is about, okay, you sort of decide what you're curious about. Um, and what you want to explore and set out in that direction. Um, because if you set out without sticking a pin in, in a map, you're going to get to a much more interesting destination. You know, mm, that's so true, yeah. Side roads. So um, giving students permission to, to realize there, um, there aren't any really right answers. There aren't any really completely wrong answers. Um, what you're looking for is the next best question. And that, uh, you know, theater, as, as you remember, and as many, uh, you know, I'm sure that you encounter this too with what you're doing, you know, it feels like a series of projects, you know, that, that even though you're in the same field, they're somewhat disconnected. Really in the project is, is, is not important. Um, the project is kind of us um, and it's our life as artists, citizens and um, uh, shoulders for other people to stand on. So being able to think of it kind of as a trajectory Mm -hmm. uh, okay, okay, I finished this project, but you know, how does it go on to the next project and how do my failures, you know, how can I stand on those and, and move to the next level? Um, I think a lot of times everybody, uh, especially young students, especially in show business, um, uh, think about this notion of I'm gonna reach this point, I will have made it. Um, and it's really horrible and disconcerting when you get to that point and you're like, oh no there's a whole nother thing up there I got to go for. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. But the ladder is endless. And so, you know, it's kind of the, um, the Buddhist theory of, of always wanting, you know, really has, has been something that I've kind of been studying and looking at because um, if it's not about the thing and it's about the journey, suddenly you're much more content. If you don't mm. need to have, if you just need to, to look for the next question. I don't know yeah. if that the question or not. But. Absolutely. And that's especially true in theater where, or any form of art actually, where every different person can look at every problem with and come up with a different conclusion. Um, you can sit down and read a script and you can have your own idea of what that script is saying in the story that's being told and the, the conclusions that you can pull from that. But then you can sit down with five or six people and work with them on a project using that very same script. And when you leave the table, that script has become something completely different. It's become alive in a different way than you thought it was. And um, that's what drew me to theater is that the way that storytelling when done collaboratively 
can just open your eyes to so many different worlds. And I just think the way that you guys teach theater at Carnegie Mellon um, is a different way than it's ever been taught to me. And it just really changed me as a creative. Well, you, you, TC, I think taught me, um, I can't remember how you really said this, but you, you said, you know, this is, and this may have been after you graduated, but you said that you, we talked a little bit about how scripture is in many ways similar um, and, you know, collaborating on, on meaning and, you know, reading um, makes it much more alive and more full and, you know, the same words can become something more to you next week than they were last week. Um, mm-hmm. yes. grows. So <clears throat> I really appreciated that comparison. Now you also, um, while I was at Carnegie Mellon, taught growing theater outreach where you poured into the lives of students who were um, maybe didn't have access to theater education in the way that a lot of us sometimes do. Can you tell me a little bit about that program and why you think it's so important to start teaching the arts at an early age? So um, in a way, I think actually, um, and you, you know, you have three kids and so you know this way better than I do, but kids are more creative than grownups. You know, we, in some ways, mm-hmm. we train that out of ourselves. And so um, introducing, it's not really introducing the arts early. It's really just taking that amazing creative mind that, you know, a, a four or five, six elementary school you know, the kids, they're never afraid to say, what if? Mm-hmm. Um, they're never afraid of that kind of failure. To take that before it gets trained out of them in the interest of standardized testing and, you know, uh, procedural uh, linear thinking um, and really, you know, teach people to think in a creative and constructive kind of way that is, is inventive and, you know, innovative. I love that program. And I think in a way, that program set me up to be able to raise children who are creative. My oldest daughter, Emery, she, um, whenever I'm trying to problem solve, I always bring her along because she just sees the world so much differently than I do. And you're right. She's not afraid of failure. Like I can look at something and say, I know that won't work, but she'll try it anyway, you know, and sometimes she can make it work. And I just think that's so cool. I want to go, I want to go back to a time when I was in your class one of the biggest disagreements we had while I was there with you, I think you'll remember this, was um, when to use pen and paper to really work on the early stages of an art project and when to take that into digital form. And I know things have changed a lot since I was in college. It's a lot easier to grab an iPad and grab a little pencil with that iPad and draw on it. But I do remember you getting onto me earlier on when I would want to get out Photoshop so early and draw things in Photoshop. And you push me so hard to say, TC, you need to do this with a marker. You need to do this with paint. You need to do this with a pencil because the number of steps your brain is having to take to get that onto a computer screen is removing so much from the creative process. When, if you could just go straight from your brain to paper, you'll get so much more out of this creative process. Can you talk a little bit about why you thought then, and I hope still now, you think it's so important to just remove as much as you can early on in the creative process and just have the basic essentials right there in front of you? Um, yeah, I mean, as a, and, and you know, you, you all have to have all, all my students have had to sort of go along with me on my own journey, fighting my own um, uh, little internal battles. Um, sometimes, you know, 
uh, and you you were in school also where everybody just had to open AutoCAD in order to draw a single line. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think that we're in at that place right now, but it, it was kind of a cultural thing at the time. It used to frustrate me so much because um, uh, one of the most, you know, the most creative part of our brain is one that, that doesn't necessarily um, flow through things like um, language and, you know, computer buttons and things like that. And so in many ways, um, not only was it a form of procrastination, which is also, you know, a synonym for fear, um, it was, a, you know, it, it entirely bypassed the part of our brain that is the really the creative part. Mm. Um, and the part that we have been, you know, culturally taught to undernourish a little bit. Um, uh, because, you know, it's all, it's all about um, memory and facts and, you know, and or facts and or, you know, a, 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 common, uh, a common narrative um, and, you know, experimental procedures that lead to a certain outcome. And so there's a part of the brain that, that you know, begins to atrophy if there's too much of that. Um, and we all know that, you know, you type in line and you tap one point and then you tap the other point, you may draw a distance in between. By the time you've done that, one half of your brain has gone entirely to sleep. Um, so, um, so to me, the things that you can do, I've started, um, I started calling it do and respond. Um, so the idea is to, to whatever's in front of you should be a collaborator. So, um, if you, if you draw a line, you should be able to look at that line and go, okay, is it a line? And then you draw a circle or is it a circle? Um, and that can lead you in all kinds of different directions that drawing an, a line in AutoCAD might not. Um, I often say to students, you know, we, we make model boxes of theaters um, and put model boxes in them. Um, and I'll, especially the younger ones think, I have to have an idea before I start. It's like, no, take off your shoe, put it in the model box and look at it. What's right about it? What's wrong about it? You've started, right? And if you're not wearing a shoe, use your sock. Use the thing that's sitting next to you. It doesn't matter what it is. You'll be able to look at it and go, oh, that's a nice green. Why is that nice? So it's this kind of constant collaboration with what's in front of you. And the more obstacles that you um, introduce to that collaboration, the less effective it is. I love what you said about um, having to have an idea before you build a model box. For people who don't know, a model box is a, a small model of a theater that you can build scenery in to see if it works in the space or not. What would you say to the perfectionists out there who um, always has to make everything perfect and always has to have all their lines perfectly straight and their colors perfect early on in the process, what would you say to them to encourage them to let go of perfection and just let the idea grow in a organic type of way? Because that used to be me. When I first started college, um, if it couldn't be perfect, I didn't want to do it. And I think part of that is the competition that's happening there where everyone's just trying to get a leg up on everyone else. But I think also part of it is, is just the perfectionist inside of me that wants everything to be great. When sometimes the best idea comes out of something that wasn't great. It was really ugly to begin with. And maybe only I saw it, but it grew into something beautiful later on. What would you say to the perfectionist out there who is, who is not willing to let unperfect work turn into something beautiful? Well, so maybe it's about redefining what perfect work is. Um, uh, you know, what we were, we were saying before um, about um, the notion of changing the idea of looking for answers um, to looking for the next best, best question. Mm -hmm. um, if you're looking for the next place to put your foot down, 
Um, it doesn't have to be a perfect place because walking is an act of constantly falling forward. Um, and if that foot doesn't quite land in the right place, then the next foot will. Um, so perfect walking is just moving forward. It's not necessarily getting anywhere. Um, you know, when you were a student, young students often think that everything is a finish line. Um, and finish lines are really, you know, unless, unless you're on a, in a foot race, they're imaginary. Uh, That's so uh, true, yeah. We, you know, we think of, if you really think about it, you're like, well, well, there's death. Death is the finish line. And you're like, how do you know? You know, right. um, I would probably say not. I don't know what's after that, but um, uh, finish lines to me, once they start, once the, you can make those lines, those boundaries artificial, um, and, and realize that everything is just a step in, in a much greater process. Um, whether it be a single show or a lifetime of work or, you know, the growth of you as a, as a, as a person and a contributor in society, um, it takes a lot of pressure. I never do anything anymore that's any good. I mean, the older I get, the worse my stuff gets. And yeah. I kind of revel in it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> now, another memory I have is um, on my first week in your class, my junior year, you made us bring... I hope you still do this because I tell this story all the time to people. You made us bring our favorite piece of work from our time there at Carnegie Mellon to class. And then we had to destroy it and have a funeral for it. And, and what that taught me was um, as an artist, I am not defined by the work that I do. Um, it taught me to allow people to criticize the work that I do without it being a criticism on me. And it taught me to, um, never place anything that I do on a pedestal. It's, it's in, in some senses, it's a job. It's a job that we love, but it's a job. Can you tell a little bit about why um, that was the first project you did for us that year and why it's so important to be able to set the work that you do aside as an artist? So as, as you know, most people who come to our program um, come from a place where their entire, oftentimes their entire social and, and artistic and just their entire identity revolves around theater, the people in theater, you know, it becomes a family, it becomes um, a, a career, it becomes a, a vocation, an advocation. Um, they see the world through that, through the lens of the theater, because that's what theater does. Mm. And so, um, and I know that this is true in different ways in many other professions. Um, and so we, you know, especially in the US, we begin to, um, we begin to conflate the notion of ourselves with our work. Um, and honestly, our work, the minute that we finish something, um, it's like an exoskeleton or a, of, a, of, a, um, of a locust or a snakeskin that we've just shed. Because whatever we just finished, we've accomplished it and we're better than that now. We can do something, you know, if we're doing it right, then that's old news. That's something we did yesterday. We can do something better today. Um, so the notion that, that we are our work um, is uh, is destructive, and you know, kids today are so anxious. You know, there's so much more of a tendency mm -hmm. to anxiety. That's so true. Yeah. And so the the day that they realize that they are not their work, their work is them, but they are not their work, um, and that their work is really just a byproduct of their life. Um, uh, it's like uh, it's like freedom, you know. Yeah, it is. And you talk about kids today. Um, I'm raising three kids. They range in age from seven to nine, which is really close together. But um, it is true that kids today seem more anxious than they've ever been. 
I don't remember being as anxious as the children who are around my children are. What differences are you seeing? Obviously, you've seen generations of students go through Carnegie Mellon. What differences are you seeing in the creative process as generations go through, as technology begins to become more of a part of their life, as social media has made our world smaller? How is that changing how students as creatives are working through their creative process? What is that? What's different about that now than it used to be? Um, everything. I mean, there's so much good to it. So um, I realized that at, at some point, um, you could, uh, it was just, in, it was in conversation with somebody a long time ago who said the word aggregate about um, the way that our students think. And I, you know, it was like one of those head smacking moments where I went, oh my gosh, I grew up as a linear thinker. Um, and I got all of my understanding of the world from a very narrow set of sources. So, mm -hmm. you know, we would get the Washington Post and there would be the evening news. Um, and as a kid, you know, uh, uh, we had to read the post a little bit in class, but that was sort of it. Um, there, were no, there was no internet. There was kind of one story and you believed it to be the truth. <laughs> um, uh, you know, Vietnam changed all that because suddenly there was the reporting of war. You know, it, was, it wasn't a good versus evil thing. Um, suddenly that war was on TV. That to me was kind of in many ways the beginning of, of what's happening now. And that is that um, uh, your kids, you know, you and I uh, came up with a well-made play, you know, where everything was really tightly structured um, and, and everything was really carefully interwoven and there was a clear narrative. And now, like your kids get have their understanding of the world from uh, you know if there if there is something that's happened in the world and they may be a little bit young for this, but they will understand it from a number of different sources. They'll see it from a number of different points of view. Yes. There's entire chunks that are missing, and there may be other chunks that they are so well versed on. Um, and so, narrative to them is an entirely different thing. It may not be linear. The way that they understand the world is kind of in bits and pieces and maybe the end before the beginning. Um, and that's incredible for storytellers, right? That's like, you know, that turned us into all into being able to write, you know, Faulkner's and understand Faulkner's as I lay dying, which to me was, you know, like really kind of perplexing at the time. But um, but the notion of, you know, I, I compared a lot to, to all of the things that are happening like in, in, in physics right now you know, quantum physics and the notion of time and the notion of two things happening at once and being a little weird. It's like mm -hmm. the entire zeitgeist of the world has changed. So in some ways that makes young people much more free and creative um, because they are also, you know, they're also the, their own curators and their, their own producers, like the, I forget what the percentage is, but the, they produce like a billion times more. I mean, that's obviously an exaggeration than you or I ever did. Like if we did a play in our garage when we were kids, that was a big deal. You know, they right. podcasts and, and um, I mean, they do everything. So um, to the so, point where my kids, obviously they read books, but they would rather have a bunch of blank pieces of eight and a half by 11 paper stapled together than a prefabricated coloring book from the store. They would rather draw their own picture and color it than have like a Paw Patrol coloring book or a you name it coloring, a Mickey Mouse coloring book. And I love that about this generation of kids is it seems like they ask way more questions than I was ever able to ask. And they are more curious than I ever was. And it gives me so much hope for the future of the creative space, um, especially watching Emory Ann, my oldest daughter, 
produce artwork. It's just, it's amazing what she's able to produce with her hands and how her brain thinks about creative things. It, it really blows my mind. We, we, I would love to see some of her stuff sometime. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll have to send it to you. I mean, that, um, one of the most interesting things um, also is that, you know, that, that notion of the analog, the stapling together pieces of paper, it's suddenly like new and cool. Mm-hmm. Just pretty amazing. Uh, it's really cool. Yeah. Let me ask you this: We talk about the creative process for younger people. Over time, how has your creative process changed? Is it the same that it's always been? What is your creative process? Oh, I have no, no process. I mean, I, I <laughs> of course I get more and more kind of difficult um, as I go because um, um, maybe not difficult, but yeah, definitely, definitely difficult, but um, less and less passive. Mm-hmm. Um, I become more and more like a two-year-old. What is, why is the sky blue? You know, why are lobsters red after they're cooked? Why, you know, um, why, why, why? Um, you know, it, it's all, my creative process um, is about making connections. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about, the thing that I look for now, the thing that I search for is taking unlike things and crashing them together and seeing what happens. Um, because the world is about relationships. And so um, if one can do that when you're world building, um, in an unusual way, it's kind of amazing what happens. I mean, I guess my creative process is just about discovery. I get so excited when something new happens and when I'm exploring it with um, people who are smarter than me and, you know, you know. <laughs> I love what you said about taking things that are unlike and crashing them together because I feel like when I was growing up in theater, we tried to create this perfect environment where everything lived harmoniously. But in real life, like what lives harmoniously, life is things that aren't alike crashing together and you learning to survive that. Right. And I think um, when you allow that onto the stage and you allow imperfection onto the stage and you allow that tension onto the stage, it makes theater more relatable for people. And it it opens up a world that they can come into and feel like they can live in. And I love how you put that into words. I mean, everything is different in context of everything else, right? Like two things I happen to have on my desk, this little stuffed duck, which I have on my desk because one of my dogs was chewing on it. And like this Apple pencil. And as separate objects, they are separate objects. But if you put them together, suddenly there's a story there. And each mm-hmm. of them becomes diff- different because they are in relation to the other thing. So, um, you know, that that's such a simple concept. But I don't know why it took me to, so long in my life to kind of actually be able to articulate that. I'm not very bright. But <laughs> well, what are some current things that you're working on right now that you're excited about? Um, let's see. Um, I am um, kind of deeply immersed in taking classes in um, uh, from business schools, um, uh, certificate programs. I just finished a couple of certificate programs, one from MIT and one from um, uh, Kellogg at uh, Northwestern. On uh, one was on asking catalytic catalytic questions, leading through um, leading through what it was it uh, creative uh, le- le- uh, inquiry driven leadership. Sorry, looking for the title. Um, and the one I just finished was um, strategic change management. And I'm now working on an entrepreneurship um, series of courses and a certificate from Wharton um, at Penn. Um, I am really interested right now in education, higher ed, and the way that I think we're doing it wrong. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I think that we are using an old model for an older generation. Um, and that we, uh, this notion of teachers being masters um, is completely outdated. Uh, you can't master anything anymore. You can't be an expert for more than 10 minutes anymore. 
Um, so changing that paradigm to being guides and co-learners, um, you know, I mean, that's all kind of new standard educational theory, but we are like way behind in higher ed theater with that. Well, I think you guys were so good at that while I was there. You guys, um, especially you, treated the classroom as a learning environment for everyone. It wasn't like you were standing up on a stage teaching down to us. You, you were there learning along with us. That was probably at that point was an act of desperation. <laughs> uh, because, you know, at some point you don't know what, you, you know, there is humility in that, I guess. But mm -hmm. also, um, uh, you know, I've always just like trying stuff. I like setting stuff on fire and seeing what happens. Um, uh, um, which isn't always the best way to do it. But um, um, but I have in many cases in my life thought of myself as a master of X or Y and gotten all... <laughs> if somebody challenged me, you know, if a student challenged me. Um, and so at one point I was like, okay, what happens if I flip this and make it my favorite moment when the students prove me wrong? Um, and I, I have a student right now that's in the process of proving me wrong. Um, and it's genius. It's genius. It's the best thing ever. Um, so it's really selfish, mm. you know, because why would I be there if I wasn't learning too? Right. right. And I remember um, one last thing. You used to have a time on Tuesday nights where you would bring food and allow us to work on projects at night. Some of the biggest breakthroughs I had were in those moments because the, the space had changed, the timing had changed, and sometimes just stepping out of your pattern into a different pattern changed the way that you looked at something that you'd been looking at for two weeks completely differently or changing the people that were sitting in the room or the, the flavors and the smells of ethnic foods from around the world opened up a part of your brain that wasn't open before to see something completely differently. That was a game changer for me. It's something that taught me sometimes when you're sitting there wringing your fingers trying to figure out the answer, sometimes it's better just to get up and walk away and go for a walk and get some fresh air and eat something that you've never eaten before. Try to do something you've never done done before and then come back to that same problem and see what angle you view it from differently and um that was a game changer for me it really was i mean i i do similar things but kind of on different different scales and in different ways now um i i talk about a lot as as feeding yourself um mm -hmm. because i think that i sort of grew up believing that if you just leaned into something and just kept working on it until you dropped that eventually something would happen with it. And that's actually not true. It's not at all, no. Um, and so um, uh, being able to actually um, put your, you know, if you're sitting in a comfortable place, you're never going to make progress. You know, you're never well, going to get out of your, your psychological uh, comfort zone. So um, the, the, the things that have cha really changed me in my life is when I was the most uncomfortable, when things were the most ambiguous. Um, and so I actually have tried to um, encourage amb ambiguity and encourage discomfort and to find different ways to say, okay, what are you doing? Are you still sitting in the same, you know, like me existing in the liminal space between my living room and dining room? How can I, how can I make that uncomfortable? So it was like, like with those classes, I'm like, well, how can I look at these problems differently? Mm -hmm. um, I know, oh, I'm going to start with one of the very best business schools in the world and take a class. And, um, uh, and if I fail, you know, I was sort of giving myself an excuse to fail because I'm like, I'm gonna just go to MIT, what the hell, right? Um, uh, 
and and I didn't fail. Um, and I actually, yeah, they actually, well, I'll share this story with you later about a case study that they had, which was actually doing something that I had already done. Um, uh, so I, um, just finding different ways to look at the world, you know, different glasses. Yeah. It changes everything, doesn't it? It does. But thank you for putting it that way, because I hadn't thought about it that way. I had thought about it more as the notion of somehow there is, you know, as humans, we always make the mistake of thinking that we are individuals and that we are somewhat disconnected. Um, and we are. The older I get, the more I realize that everything's connected in some way. Well, and thank you so much. Well, TC, it's a pleasure as always. Um, I hope that y'all make it up here sometime soon. Please say hi to Megan. And um, I would say say hi to your kids, but they don't know who I am. So uh, pretend to say hi to them. And <laughs> I hope to see you soon. Man, I always love chatting with Anne. Her methods of teaching brings out the best in students, and it's just amazing what she's able to do with students in the design process. If you'd like to know more about the School of Drama at Carnegie Mellon University, you can find out more at drama.cmu.edu. If you enjoyed today's episode, would you please share it with a friend and leave a comment wherever you listen to podcasts? I look forward to seeing you next time on Undercover Influencer.